Welcome to Income for Baby Boomers. If you want to learn about exciting new businesses each week from other boomers who speak your language and have started a unique and profitable business from home, you have come to the right place. For those who would like to try some of these low investment opportunities, stay tuned. We'll help you get started in your own profitable adventure. Now with your host and entrepreneur, Ken Queen. I'd like to welcome Alfred Poor, writer of several books, Seven Successful Secrets, but startups can learn from Breaking Bad and uh, several other books, and it just goes on and on. Your your credentials. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Uh, Glad to, to have spring here finally in the Mid Atlantic. Uh, yes, I used to live up north, so yes, I'm in Florida now, so it's a little a little nicer. Alfred, just to go back kind of to your your beginning entrepreneurial days. Have you been one all your life? Like you had the lemonade stand when you were a kid? Or? I, actually, I I did the lemonade stand thing when I was a kid, and I had a my best friend would sleep over on Saturday night for the weekend. We'd get up before everybody else, and we would write a Sunday paper, which we would then take downstairs and sell to my parents for a nickel. Oh. <laughs> uh, so that was actually my original beginnings as a published writer. Very small circulation. And I, my younger brother and I, uh, I got us selling greeting cards, which was a mail-order thing that you could do back then. So you started a mail-order. Well, nice. well we, we bought the mail-order, and then I would sell them to neighbors and, and school teachers and any prospects I could find. But the thing was, it was it was funny because we would pretty much do it when we had a project in mind. You know, if there was some game that we wanted to get. I remember what, there, was, there was a game that we both really, really wanted and we didn't have the money for it. And so we went door to door throughout the neighborhood selling the cards. And I remember one woman asking us, well, you know, what are you raising the money for? Expecting, you know, some sort of charity or Nice program. She said, well, there's this toy that we really want to buy. <laughs> she was so impressed. She bought about four boxes of cards. But in spite of that early beginning, I probably really was not cut out for entrepreneurship. In fact, went exactly the opposite direction right out of college. I, I ended up teaching in middle school science, you know, went the, the, the low pay, secure, secure route and uh, discovered that uh, as much as I love teaching, that I really was not a was not a good match for 40-minute segments throughout the day. So it really was my career choices were driven in large part due to lifestyle choices, being you know, more productive and in other work settings. Soon after, found my way into freelance writing and computer consulting. As a result, I haven't had a paycheck in 30 years, 35 years, something like right. that. How did you initially start it? When you, when you started this Well, uh, what happened was I worked, I was the utility infielder for a superintendent's office in a public school district outside of Waterbury, Connecticut, and basically was the under assistant Lord High, everything else. Anything that wasn't somebody else's job landed on my desk. And this was very, very early days of the personal computers. The IBM PC was not out yet. We had Radio Shacks and Apples around. And there was a Radio Shack Model 80 that uh, was underused by the, the, the finance office, and I started using it for managing the registrations for the adult education program, figuring out which ones we could afford. Because we made profits on some programs with strong registrations, it meant we could run a handful of uh, under-registered programs that lost money so long as we broke even. And the, the break-even analysis was made, was made really easy using a, a VisiCalc spreadsheet back then. And okay. I did other things. I uh, helped design the curriculum for the middle school computer centers that they put in and some other stuff. So I was 
doing a lot of work with the personal computers as they came online in the, the school districts and decided what I wanted to do was maybe help other school districts with that. And so I ended up quitting my, my last salaried position and going out as a consultant and discovered that schools didn't have any money for consultants, but managed to, <laughs> first, first yeah, that was, that was, that was a strategic problem that I, I failed to do the, the, the full business plan analysis and putting this together. Um, there are a number of mistakes that I made, but, but I ended up getting tied in first with the Radio Shack stores and then later the IBM computer centers and basically offered my services to their customers to do the things that the stores couldn't. So the stores would sell them the hardware and the software, and I would sell them the services to get their programs set up and configure their files and train their people and so forth. That was a pretty good start, but from there I did some writing to publicize the services, and that got picked up by some different people, and I ended up getting hired to write the documentation for first a, a an Apple program, but then out of New York City there was a group that was publishing a, a monthly disc of programs for personal computers and was doing pretty well with that. And I said, yeah, this is this is great stuff. I'd love to do some more. And they said, well, we don't have anything more for you right now. What they didn't tell me was that their publication had been shut down. But they said, well, go downstairs, though. Just a minor what? Just a, a minor, minor point. point. Well, you know, um, need to know basis or something. They said, go go on downstairs and meet this guy, Mike Ellerhart, because he's, he's with a magazine that we're associated with the same publisher. Maybe, you know, maybe he's got something for you. And that was PC Magazine. And he gave me my first assignment. And the rest, as they say, was history. I wrote for PC Magazine for over 20 years and did very well. So that was a full-time income just from your one customer? Primarily. I had other customers. I also wrote for, for Computer Shopper and a bunch of the other Ziff Davis computer magazines. But, yeah, I, I made a very fine full-time living, put our kids through college and everything just by writing. It was, sure. a, it was a good run. But, of course, it, that came to an end. What year did you switch over to the next? Well, you know, it was a death of a thousand cuts. Um, okay. Well, PC Magazine's still going. Yeah, only it? online. There's no print magazine. Only online. And, oh, and Computer Shopper stopped printing a, a print magazine. Yeah, it was a huge catalog. It was a huge catalog. But then they went to the slick paper, and all of a sudden it shrank down to just another magazine like everybody else, uh, which was a huge disappointment to the editors when they first saw it. But it, it saved them a lot of money over the, the phone book-sized yeah. one. But the, the, the Internet, as, as with everything, changed, it changes everything. And so in the magazine business, you wanted really good quality content in the limited space that you had available so that your subscribers would keep coming back. Today on the Internet, you don't have subscribers. You don't really care if anybody comes back or not. You just want to have as many articles out there as possible so that when somebody's searching for something, the chances are better that one of your pages will show up and they'll click on it. And when they view the page, then the cash register rings and the advertisers pay you. So, so you're paid per click. Well, then, uh, so people you attract to the uh, some article. publishers pay per click, but but basically the the magazine strategy was you paid whatever you needed to in order to get the good quality content. With the internet, you pay as little as you possibly can so that you can get as much content for your money as possible. So it's much much harder making a living as a technology writer these days. There's some who who can do that, but but the the websites like PC Magazine's site now, it, it's tough to make a living for them. Okay. So I once again reinvented myself, and now I'm focusing primarily on developing a, a business as a professional speaker. What and but also consulting? Do I, I do very little consulting? Um, I I do some, and some interesting ones. Like just this past week, I tested all the monitors submitted 
to the Israeli government Ministry of Finance for their competitive bid for computer monitors for the coming year, which is unusual and, and kind of fun. But the main strategy I had, though, when I was coming out of the writing, I mean, I loved the writing that I did. It was it was great fun. It was always learning something new. You know, you got a chance to play with hardware and software and the latest programs and really had a chance to be on the cutting edge of everything. And that was a lot of fun. But the problem with that is it's a lot of dig a hole, fill it up. Now go dig another hole. Everything, everything was new. And so when I came out of this, I thought, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. And I wouldn't mind trying something where I could do some one thing really well or a few things really well and just do them over and over and get paid for them. Mm-hmm. And so that's and that's why I, I started looking at at the public speaking business, because you can develop a, a menu of a, a half dozen different talks that you give. And sure, you tailor them and tweak them. But essentially, it's the same content, the same basic message. One formatted to lawyers, another one to accountants. Right, exactly. So I'm I'm happy to give that a try and not make every project a brand new one, which is a long way of coming around to saying that you know, I still do the consulting, but that's all one-off work. And you know, I, I, I don't turn the work down, but it's not, it's not the kind of work that I'm pursuing as part of my business plan. Okay, so I, one of the questions I was going to ask is, how would someone get into the writing, technology writing? But uh, that's over, well, so we won't. Well, actually, no. I mean, it's, it's still a good question. There's a lot of work to be done out there. It just doesn't pay. Oh. It oh, doesn't okay. pay as well as what I used to make. And, I and so when I can't get the same pay as I got 25 years ago, you don't want to go back. A little hard. <laughs> and 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 we're not t- saying talking about a little less. I mean, in some cases, we're talking about one fifth to one tenth as much. So we're talking 200,000 compared to 40,000? Well, if an, if a given assignment 25 years ago paid me $500, it's not uncommon to be offered 50 or 100 today. Wow. Yeah. It's a big difference. And your bills didn't change. They're still bills big. Are <laughs> built, well, you know, the kids are through college and that's all paid for. So, yeah. But still your lifestyle you want to maintain. But, uh, yeah, it, it's tough to make a meal at those rates. However, th- again, there are people who do get paid well. You still – the thing is it's just like – just like any other occupation that you go after, there are going to be a few people at the top who make a you know make make the sure. big money, and at the base there's going to be a whole lot of people who are just you know getting by or you know doing it part time and and supplementing their income with something else. I mean, and it's it's true for writers, it's true for basketball players, it's true for real estate agents. It's pretty much the way things work. Once you get out of the salaried positions, there's you know if you start working on your own, there's there tends to be sort of a pyramid distribution of, of the income. All right. So, okay, let's uh, let's take some of our listeners. They originally were writers, maybe for a daily newspaper or working for maybe some other media along that line, and now they're retired or laid off or closed up like some of the magazines that you're, you're talking about, or maybe they worked in a magazine. How would you recommend them to go about uh, doing what you're doing and getting to where you are? What would be the first well, step? Well, there, there are a couple steps that I think are important. One is to have a presence. And social media is the way to do that. First and foremost, it means having a LinkedIn profile that describes you and what you're looking for. One of the areas that I talk about is the whole cluster of career skills and job search and and success. I I focus a lot with uh, the young people, college age and recent graduates, but a lot of the principles hold no matter what age you are. And so one of the most important things is to create your LinkedIn profile. And one of the tricks of the site that a lot of people don't seem to click onto, but a lot of people see the first field is their name. So they put their name in and then the next field is their title. So they put their title in wrong. You don't put your title 
in the title field. What you put in the title field is what you want. So if you're a writer looking to work in the aerospace industry, that's what goes in your title field. So that when somebody looks you up, looks up your profile, they know exactly what you're in the market for. And then same thing in, in your, your bio. Don't write your bio. Write it what it is. You know, that's your sales pitch. That's where you write what you have to offer and, and what proof you have that you can deliver it. So that's really, really important. But you have to have a LinkedIn profile. You should join groups that are on the topic that you're interested in. Groups in LinkedIn? Group, LinkedIn, okay. LinkedIn groups, absolutely. And participate. You know, like comments by other people. When you see a post that's interesting or you have something to share about it, make a comment and get into discussions with people. And that's how they get to know you. And people, you know, will get, will get to know you and understand your positions and get a feel for what you know. And, and again, we're talking here specifically about writing. They get a chance to see, you, see what your writing is like. And LinkedIn alone is incredibly powerful for this. I've, I've made tens of thousands of dollars in speaking just from connections that I've made over LinkedIn. So I just can't stress how important it is to do that. But then beyond that, you also want to be on Twitter. You want to be on Google Plus. You want to be on Facebook. And again, seek out people who have who are interested in the same kinds of topics that you're interested in. Post relevant articles and references on the same field that might be of interest to people who uh, you'd like to work with. And essentially just establish yourself as somebody who's knowledgeable in that field. So if I wanted to be a speaker, I've come out of the writing field, uh, publishing field, and I want to be a speaker, the first of all the platforms, first choice is to get LinkedIn going Absolutely. first, correct? Yep. LinkedIn is, is definitely, no matter what you, you want to pursue at this point, and, and whether you're looking for a salaried position or whether you're looking as a solopreneur wanting to go out and freelance, LinkedIn has to be, the, has to be stop number one okay. to establish your, because it establishes your credentials as somebody relevant in that that industry okay so now you you're getting your name out there and one of the people say yeah i'd, I'd like you to come over and speak uh, on whatever uh how do you price yourself very good question and this is the reef that a lot of people founder on um mm -hmm. let me just back up a step okay and right. what i'm about to talk about pertains to writing it pertains to being a speaker it pertains to just about any freelance or solo practitioner kind of job that you, you might have, even chiropractor, you know, some of those professional kinds of positions. And that's this. There are two very distinct aspects to making a living that way. And they're equally important, though a lot of people tend to have one but not the other. And what I'm talking about is, one, you need to have the, the, the skills and the command of the content. So if, if it's writing, you need to be a good writer. If it's speaking, you know how to. You need to know how to be persuasive. You need to have the to bring energy to your presentations, how to engage the audience, and all that stuff. All those trade skills, if you will, that knowledge and and skills about performing that task. That those are essential, and you've got to have those. Okay. However, what a lot of people don't realize is there's a whole other half to this, and that is being able to run a business. How to run a business? Doing that. And you can be the greatest writer in the world, but if you don't understand contracts, if you can't relate well to editors and understand what they want when they give you an assignment and be able to deliver it on time and, and handle the bookkeeping and all that stuff, if you don't know how to do that stuff, it doesn't matter how good a writer you are. You're going to have a hard time. Same thing if you're a speaker, again, real estate agent, you know, chiropractor, whatever area you, you might be pursuing for, for your job. So 
for a lot of people, it really pays to spend some time. You maybe take some seminars. There are some excellent books out there for any of these these areas. What books do you recommend for this? Um, for, for speaking, one of my favorite books is a, a book called Speak and Grow Rich. Speak and Grow Rich. And it's written by Dottie Walters, W-A-L-T-E-R-S, and her daughter, Lily Walters. She used to, she used to be a comedian. Uh, Dottie? Well, uh, yeah, I think. Maybe. maybe. She, she, uh, she also ran her own speaker bureau for a long, long time. But this is the, the edition I've got is you know, about 250 pages long. It's an old book, okay? Even though it was revised and updated, it's still dated. It talks about fax machines and things like that. The basic principles that it covers are fundamentally true and helps you understand the business side of, of having a speaking business. And I'm sure there are similar books out there for writers and, and, and other, other tasks as well. So part of understanding how to run a business in this is the question you've asked. What do you charge? And it's a difficult question. Are you better, are you better to overprice it or underprice it if you were going to make a well, mistake? Well, okay, I'm, my answers here are, are based more on what I've learned than what I've experienced. Because I'm still right. in the, you know, I'm still in the early stages of, of establishing myself as a, a professional speaker. Um, right. I've had some success, but it, it's still a question of, you know, I'm still building the business. The advice that I've heard that I think rings true is uh, if you're just starting out, uh, you want to set your fees somewhere around 2000 to 2500 for a, a speaking engagement. Anything so like a half hour, hour? It, it doesn't matter pretty much takes the same amount of your time, whether you're talking for 10 minutes or an hour and a half. It ties you up. It, it ties you take, You know, it's going to take a half a day or a day with, if it, there's travel, it could take two days. As I understand it, that, that signals a professional level program, but not that you're expecting to be a superstar or, or you know, have, a, have right. a, a lot of, you know, that you're got a lot of prestige in the, in the field. My understanding is once you get up to about 50 bookings a year, then you can start raising your rates. You know, if you've got 50 bookings a year, you should probably be commanding somewhere around four to $5,000 at a speaking event. And if you get in great demand and you're really good, there are people who are getting $10,000 or more. But uh, four, 4K to 5K is reasonable. Once you're established. But to, to start off, the two to two and a half is reasonable to expect. Now, is that including uh, traveling and all the that costs? The, that's up to you. Basically, for me, when I'm bidding for a, a college assignment, I include my include my travel and my fee. Whereas in, in, the, in, amount, in the amount, okay. I give them a flat rate that includes my travel. But for corporate engagements or associated meetings and that sort of thing, I charge them my fee plus my travel because that's okay. pretty much standard practice. Now, when you say, do you say, okay, I want first class air tickets, first class hotel? At, at this what? point, <laughs> I'm just happy to get there. So, no, I travel coach. I mean, if somebody were to invite me for a, an international assignment, I, I would make a business class ticket part of the terms. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not worried that I'm going to have to make that choice you know, in a big hurry. So um, that's more a matter of principle at this point than, than actual practice. But the other thing is that, vast majority of the speaking opportunities out there are for little or no pay. And but it's useful. But it can be useful. And so one of the things that's important for speakers who are trying to start out is for them to, you know, some are just adamant, I won't speak for free. You know, it demeans the, the profession. Mm -hmm. And other people, you know, other people say, oh, I'll speak anywhere, anytime. 
I, I think what's reasonable, and this is, comes back to knowing how to run the business, I think what's reasonable is to recognize when there's other value available to you, okay? And so that value can take a number of different forms. For example, one is just simple practice. You know, if you haven't done a lot of speaking in front of people, speaking for free opportunities such as, uh, you know, rotary clubs or other kinds of meetings, it's a great way to get out there and practice your, your material and, and get confident and, and get some time working on the craft. So you you could say, okay, I do want this. I want you to pro- have someone there professionally record it, and I want to be able to sell my stuff at the back. Exactly. So the, yeah. So those are two more very important possibilities. One you mentioned recording. One of the things about any business, large or small, individual or corporation, that there's a saying in marketing that nobody people don't buy products or services. Instead, they buy from people, and they buy from people that they know, like, and trust. So. Basically, people don't want to take a risk when they're buying. And one of the most risk-averse populations in the world are meeting planners, the people who actually do the hiring of the speakers, because they don't want to bomb. They want somebody who's going to show up and do a good job and that they don't have to worry about. So one of your jobs as a speaker is to do everything you can possibly do to help help these meeting planners get to know, like, and trust you. Okay, And one of the most important ways that you can do that is not tell them what you can do, but actually show them. And it's essential for any speaker to have video clips of them speaking that they can put on their website and that the meeting planners can look at and say yes or no, you know, this person has it or they don't have it or or, or whatever, but they can can make a a choice based on what they see when they see you doing it in action. So if you have an opportunity to speak someplace and they have the ability to videotape you, you know, it would be a tremendous trade for you to swap your speech to in return for them videotaping you and giving you a copy of the, the video that you can use. Now, who owns well, it? who owns the video, or do you need a legal paper to show, show well, that they I, sign that you own That can it? be handled very easily with a, with just a letter of agreement. It doesn't have to be some big fancy contract, but you just you would put it in your letter of agreement about coming to speak. You know that that they will videotape it, and you'll be given a copy, and you'll be able to use that video edited or you know in whole, intact, um, any way you choose to market your right. business. And if you if you sell it, you don't have to give them right. any money, I guess. Right. You, just, you just make that clear. And typically, I would say, and, you know, you're free to use this internally. You're not allowed to publish it, but, you know, you can't publish my presentation to everybody. But At the same time, that might be good. It could be. And and depending on who it is, uh, you, look you, at it you could do that. that. But one other piece of language that I encourage you to use uh, when setting up this kind of an arrangement is not to say I'll speak for free, but rather to say I'm willing to waive my speaking fee in return for this. Your speaking fee being 2000 bucks? Would be whatever you want it to be, but yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing is saying it that way, you can waive it in whole or in part. So you say, well, okay, your budget's only $500. Okay, I will waive the rest, the of, my, the rest of my speaking fee and, and accept just the 1500 However, You'll also do these other things to add value for me. And what what different things could you ask for besides the uh, recording? Okay, so two things that I have in every speaking agreement that I do. One is if I do a good job, you'll provide me with a testimonial letter on your organization's letterhead. In some cases, I even will offer them a draft afterwards. If they don't come up with it right away, I'll offer them a draft of some of the things that they might want to cover in the testimonial letter. Okay, so you help them write the letter. And in many cases, they'll take that draft and just sign it and send it back to me. 
But those testimonials, again, are essential because it provides social proof that somebody else thinks you did a good job, and that'll help meeting planners feel more confident about hiring you. So maybe you might want to do some video testimonies while you're there at the end of the talk. Video testimonials are wonderful. Every speaker should carry iPhone or something um, or, or their smartphone or whatever. And when somebody excited from the audience comes up and says, oh, that was, you know, you changed my life and I can't wait to try this out or, you know, it's really going to make a difference. Just stop and say, you know, would you mind just saying that again? And what I do, I'm not a lawyer, so you may want to get legal advice on this. But what I do is I ask them their name while I'm videoing. I ask them their name, I ask them where they're from, and I say, is it okay if I use this for, for promotional purposes? And then they'll say yes, and then I'll say, okay, so tell me again what you were saying about the speech. And uh, so that gives me a nominal release from them for using the, the video. And you say that into the into I say that as we're recording. iPhone. Yeah, so that's right up front. So it, it's just part of the record. And those high-energy, excited audience members talking about how great it was, that's oh, yeah. just pure gold. So that's independent of the agreements with the, the organizers. You should just always have be ready to, to make those kinds of videos when people come up to talk to you after the, after the talk. Those are pure gold. Mm-hmm. So the one thing I, I include in my agreement, again, is the, the testimonial letter. But then the other thing I ask for is, that, again, if I do a good job, you'll give me the names and contact information for two other people at some other organization that you think might be interested in booking me. And this is, you know, pebbles in the pond. One person recommends two people and they both recommend two people and they both recommend two people. Yeah. You know, pretty soon you get, you reach out to a lot of people. But the beauty of it is you're, go- you're able to go to them and say, I gave a speech for so-and-so and they said I should contact you because you might be interested. Automatically changes the polarity of the, the pitch. You're not coming in cold coming in yes. tied to somebody who they know. And so that makes a huge difference. So those are two other pieces of value that, again, I include that in every agreement letter. Could we go a little further on that particular point sure. and say, uh, everyone I contact, uh, I'm going to mention your name and that, and then that's okay with you? Well, it, I, I don't spell that out. I, I don't, right. I've never had anybody have a problem with that. And sometimes okay. they don't come through with it. You know, I, we'll send out a reminder or two, but it's, you know, I won't press them on it. Again, it's the social proof and can be very powerful, an excellent way to, to help them. Now, uh, another thing that you can do of value that you already referred to was selling products in the back of the room. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I just can't stress enough. I've written or co-authored more than a dozen books. So you've got a bunch of books to put back and there. So, yeah. So, well, they're not all on relevant, relevant topics to each other. But, um, yeah. okay. but my, I have a saying that, Every book needs a speech, and every speech needs a book. The point of it is... Okay, this brings me to the next question then. Do a person just retired from a newspaper or some kind of media thing, does he need to write a book immediately? Is that something that you would put on the front I'd put it. I'd put it near the top because, again, it's credentialing. It depends on the field, of course, but even in this day and age of, of self-publishing, having written a book sets you apart from the rest of the field. I, I joke with people that... There are only three quantities in publishing. There's one, two, and many. If you write a book, that sets you apart from 99% of the rest of the world who haven't written the book. If you write a second book, it shows that the first book wasn't a total fluke. And then after that... You want to get, you want to get your second book out as quick as possible, probably, too. Probably, yeah. But after your second book, nobody cares how many books you've written. 
whether it's three or 30 or whatever. You've written a lot of books. But as far as speaking goes, one of the things people come to me a lot and say, you know, I've got this book I want to write and it's this great idea and everybody needs this information and it's going to change the world. And I say, fine, why do you want to publish it? Well, I'm going to, going to make a lot of money on it. Well, I, I'll tell you right now, you know that pyramid that I was talking about earlier? Well, that's the wrong end. The base, the base level <laughs> of people with who published a book who made you know a hundred bucks off it total. That, that's a huge portion of people who've written books. That's the majority. Okay. Way, way the majority. And it, so it, it's really hard to have a book unless you're Stephen King or Tom Clancy. Writing a book is not going to generate a lot of money by itself. However, and, and by the same token, there are a lot of speaking opportunities that aren't going to pay much money. But the synergy between having a book and a speech is tremendous because when you talk, when you give a speech and you mention your book, even if you're not selling it there, you're telling people about it. They'll go on Amazon and buy it. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a way to get egg money in addition to whatever you were getting from the event. However, as you mentioned, to be able to have a book to sell at the back of the room after your speech can also be a great way to make make money. I mean, I've uh, spoken at Rotary clubs and things like that, and you know, didn't make a ton of money, but sold enough books afterwards to cover, you know, certainly cover some of my time for being there. And if you've ever been to a live concert and the the artist is selling CDs or T-shirts or posters or whatever after the show, people just just flock to buying them. And the reason is they've had a good time, they've enjoyed the event, and they just want a souvenir. They want to take a little piece of you home with them. And so if you have something there that you can sell, you know, it can be a great way to, to build, the, uh, build the revenues for, the, for that, that event. There's a funny story that I know. I heard somebody tell me about this. For one of the programs that I give for uh, small business marketing, I have my book, plus I have two CDs, audio CDs that people can listen to on the same, same topic. Well, this guy was talking about having a package of, like that with a book and, and recordings. And he told the story of a guy who used to do training for food service workers, corporate cafeterias and things like that. Not not restaurants, but the things like food safety, dealing with difficult employees, federal regulations, those kinds of things. And so he had a bunch of workbooks and he had a collection of like six CDs of audio information for people to listen to. And he was going around the country and he was selling these. And after about six months, he got a call from the duplication house that put the CDs together for him. And they said, we're really sorry this happened. <laughs> and he said, what? He said, well, blank. He, it was worse than that. <laughs> he said, there's this guy who does thing about oil rig drilling, you know, oil rig safety programs. And, oh, and, and somehow his content that? got onto your CDs and your CD content got on his CDs. And, and of course, we'll make good on this and replace them all for you. And we're really sorry that it ever happened, you know, that it happened. But the thing is, he'd been selling for six months, and nobody ever complained. So either no one's listening to it at right. all. <laughs> Which is the case. I mean, you know, a lot of people get this stuff, this training, these training materials, and they take them home thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get to that, and it sits on the shelf. And same thing with the books. So Guilty as charged. Me too. I've oh, I've got them still in the shrink wrap here. But the bottom line here, I, I tell the joke, tell the story, you know, partly because it's, it's humorous. The point of it is that you don't have to write a Pulitzer Award quality book. I mean, you just have to write a book that has value, that mm-hmm. is an honest, professional attempt to convey information that's going to be helpful to your audience. And it doesn't have to be New York Times bestseller quality. 
you just get your message out, get it down. You can always you can always come up with a, another edition if you're not happy with the way it turns out. But but as you said, put it near the top of the list, get it out there because it's a way for you to have you know to pick up an extra depending on the audience and what you're selling and how much you sell it for. You know, it could bring in a hundred dollars, it could bring in five or six thousand dollars. So it's important to have that as as part of your practice. And again, to step back a level, this is all part of running a business as a speaker. So it's not the craft. This is all part of understanding what it takes to run a business. So maybe one of your requirements will be that you want two volunteers to help run your back room sales. Well, the first the first level step is permission to sell in the back of the room anyway. Okay. Okay. And and so when somebody says to you, we want you to come speak for free and no, you can't sell anything. Well, that's when the business part kicks in and you have to say, well, okay, I'm sorry, but I just don't see that there's enough value here for me to make it worth worth my while to, to, to come and speak. Thank you for thinking of me. Does that happen very often? Oh, I turn things that, like that down all the time. Oh, okay. So the, a lot of them, they want, they, they want you to sell nothing and to speak for free. Right. And, and meanwhile, they're charging admission. They're paying for the hotel room. They're paying for food and drink for the attendees. They're paying, you know, all kinds of stuff. And yet they don't want to pay for the content that's going to cause the attendees to show up in the first place. Their business model is really working well right, for them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so there are times when, you know, thank you, but I, I choose not to play that. Right. Okay. So we talked about the testimonial, letter, testimonial letters. We talked about getting the, the referrals to other people who might hire you. We talked about getting video recording. And along with that goes audio recordings, uh, still photography. If they have a photographer who's roaming around taking pictures, the, giving you access to those pictures, you know, is, is a value. Um, we talked about being able to sell your products in the back of the room. There's a fifth benefit that a lot of people might overlook. Uh, let's say you're a singer and you have the opportunity to appear on The Voice and they're not going to pay you. Is that a good deal? Yeah. I mean, it would sound like a what good deal to me because you're getting to audition you know, for the you know, the recording industry on national television. So that is a, the, the fifth kind of benefit. When you have an opportunity to audition for your market. So let's say you've got a topic that is relevant to corporations in terms of their human resources department. Okay. And, and there's training their line level managers need to know in order to increase productivity or reduce their liability for some compliance problem or whatever it might be. Okay, so if you had the opportunity to deliver your speech in front of two or three hundred people who are exactly the people who might hire you to do that for a corporate client, you might you might pay. You might even pay to do that. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So there's no hard and fast rule about when you should waive your fee and, and, and when you shouldn't. But it's just, again, part of doing the business. You need to look at it and see cost benefit ratio. What what are you risking? What's the What's the potential reward and does it make good business sense to you? There's no hard and fast answer, but again, a lot of people in your audience have had a lot of experience in business at this point in their lives. So a lot of those skills and experiences that you have really can translate into this business side. You may not have been responsible for those, but, I'm, but just through osmosis and, and, and seeing how your businesses have operated – you've already got a certain innate sense about these kinds of decisions and, and, and what you need to do. So if you have a chance to speak at the National Convention for Event Planners. Yes. If I had the chance to speak at a regional meeting of event planners. Uh-huh. If I had the chance I'll to speak pay. at a monthly meeting of a local chapter uh-huh. of event planners, uh-huh. I would 
I would right. definitely jump at the chance. So let, let me just go back here for a second. And so, okay, this person uh, was uh, worked in a newspaper, and now he's going to do his own thing. He's picked a specialty that he wants to focus on, maybe recruiting, whatever. Uh, he, he wants to talk on that. He's given 10 talks, 10 free talks, mm-hmm. got some videos. At what point does he go after the event planners? I mean, he doesn't want to do it before he's got some something on his uh, website like right. Raving fans or something, but at what well, point does he transition? Okay, it, it, I've done the foundation. Now I'm going to go after the. the yeah, well, I don't think I don't think it hurts to start going after them from the beginning. You, know, you, you may not have your your everything perfect and just the way you want, but you never know. Maybe that something you say clicks with somebody, and they're going to hire you, and that will help jumpstart the whole process. The first speaking gig I did with with college audiences happened as a result of an exchange on a LinkedIn group. And basically what I had done was I had offered to speak free to a, a Philadelphia area college if they would videotape me. And this guy contacted me and said, I, you know, I want, want to take you up on the free offer, but I want to do that in the fall. I need you for something in August and we're going to pay you for it. Was that in that 2000 range yes. that you had? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, okay. Most organizations are used to that 2000 plus level. I, I wouldn't say most organizations, but I would say yes. Or, there are organizations who are. And the other thing is, there's you know, a college is is no more monolithic an organization than you know any any corporation. I mean, the mailroom budget is a whole lot different than the marketing budget, which is a whole lot different from you know the the uh, the paper supply budget. Yeah. So right. there are one of the things with with me, my whole focus on career skills and success after graduation, I naturally focused initially on the college career centers. Thinking that mm-hmm. that would be the, the, the relevant, no <laughs> that would be the relevant point. The fact is they have no money, and mm-hmm. whether real or perceived, they they have often have little clout on campus, and most of them are drowning with just trying to keep up with the work they've got, you know, let alone trying to bring somebody in from the outside. Uh, so it turns out that the campus campus activity student life department is a better, much better target market for More me. Cash. Because they're mm-hmm. more used to spending that kind of money for entertainers and and speakers and things. Right. So and again, that's part of the business side of it. Learning okay. where the money is, how to market to them, and that sort of thing. Okay. So let's take this fellow. He's done ten practice ones. He's got some testimonies looking good. Now, how does he go after the event planner? He's going to well, telemarket them. He's going to direct mail them. What's he going to do? A lot of people do them different ways. Direct mail still works. It's expensive, but it works. First of all, I'd encourage people to start locally local targets of opportunity because then they don't have to pay travel it makes you less gotcha. makes you more affordable and it's easier you know more flexible easier for you to to meet their schedule do two events in the same day or yep, exactly another thing about direct mail pieces i recommend either going with a postcard which is with a full color image and call to action on one side and then short bit of text and the address on the other side either go that which is very cost effective. You know, it's low cost. Vista Print mm-hmm. will print the postcards for you for very little money. Or go with a, a large flat envelope or a, a padded envelope, 9 by 12, something like that, and make what's called a lumpy mailing. All right. If you send somebody, well, think about it. When you get something in the mail, you can't, you can't figure out it, what it is. You want right. To but if it's a number 10 envelope and it's got a couple sheets of paper in there and it's from somebody you don't know, you're pretty much expecting it to be a sales pitch and maybe a, not even maybe a credit card or a subscription offer that you're not going to be interested in. So you've already edited it out before you've opened it. 
But like you say, if it's a lumpy mailing, if there's something in there that's, that's more than just paper, what is that? It could, it could be a pen. It could, it could be, be a pen. It could be right? one of the people I work with advises you to just go down to the dollar store and find some decorations that are relevant to what you're pitching and stuff a couple of those items in the envelope with, with your pitch. And I did a mailing to HR managers that said uh, it, it's tough to erase a bad hiring mistake. And part of the illustration had an eraser on it, and part of an employee was, was being erased out of the picture. And in the box with this pitch letter and with a, a one sheet about my, my program, I included a couple pencils that had my name on it. I had had a couple uh, little plastic pencil sharpeners, and I had a great big eraser with my contact information on it, like my business card kind of information on it. On, on the eraser. starting to get into lots of weight there. Yeah, it was, but but again, but it, it worked. I mean, I think with postage and everything, they were less than only about four or five dollars a piece for the mailing, and so you send out a hundred of them. That's five hundred dollars. If you get one booking. For twenty five hundred dollars, I would do that all day, every day. What about piggyback mailings uh, that maybe someone's already mailing stuff to the group you're after, mm -hmm. and, and you have your flyer in there? With it I haven't something. done that much. Um, I've done some some advertising with uh, different associations, putting my my information out in front of you know in front of the membership, and I haven't had a whole lot of success with that. I haven't done enough of it to really be able to say. It doesn't work for me, but it's not a strategy that I, I'm focusing on. Okay, what about the guy that really doesn't want to spend a bunch of money and he just wants to use sweat equity? How would, would he uh, spend all his days uh, or spend most of his day emailing these event planners, or should he be trying to get them on the phone? Well, okay, so, so the, the method that I've used to good advantage is telephone, and either straight telephone or telephone combined with, email or, 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 poke, or, or, or mail. paper mail. And you do it in a couple steps. Okay, so one of the most important things here is you want to reduce the sales resistance as much as possible. So the first call is all you're doing is getting information. So again, say that it's a training program for corporation managers, something about HR stuff. So what you would do is you would call the corporation general number and find out, get the contact information for the, the human resource office. The next step is you call the human resource office and say, who is the person who is in charge of hiring trainers for HR projects? And they'll say, it's Mary Jones. And you say, may I have her mailing address and email address, please? And they may or may not give that to you. But if nothing else, at least you know it's Mary Jones and you know the company. But in most cases, they'll give you her contact information, some of it. There are three pieces, mailing address, email address, and phone number. And if you can get any of those three, then you've got a way to, to make contact. And then you just say, thank you very much, and then you end the call. Now, it may be that they'll say, here, it's Mary Jones, let me connect you. And that, well, that saves you a whole bunch of steps, and you can start talking to Mary Jones right away. Now, for me, I don't love making phone calls. I got you. Uh, Outbound telemarketing is not your part. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, you know, I I can do it, but it it's not the part that that I love the most about this. And this is a secret that people starting out may want to know about that applies to all kinds of things, including this sort of market research. And that is, there are people out there who are more than happy to do it for you. I've got a bunch of people who make these kinds of research phone calls for me, um, gotcha. and I pay them uh, anywhere from twelve fifty to twenty five dollars an hour. 
and they can make a lot of calls in an hour. And there's a whole industry called virtual assistants out there. So you can hire a virtual assistant to do this kind of work for you. Um, and there are actually companies in the Philippines that have massive banks of people who will make these kinds of calls for you at, at a very affordable price. What would be affordable price, do you think, in the Philippines for I, someone? I, I, off the top of my head, I think we're talking about 4 or $5 an hour for these services. Um, I don't use them because I want to have somebody who understands the local geography. You know, I want to be mm -hmm. able to say – That's important for I what want calls. Yeah, I only call colleges within 50 miles of Philadelphia. You know, so they need to be able to understand what that is. And I also want people who I can explain my, my basic pitch to so that when they make the call and all of a sudden find themselves connected to Mary Jones, mm -hmm. they can talk intelligently about about what I'm about, you know, can can present themselves as my colleague and they're calling on my behalf and this is what he does and this is what he has to offer and would you be interested in talking to him more about it? You know, so we have have some sort of a pitch. Now, event planners are one category. What other categories can we go after now that we want to do? Something? Yeah, it depends on what your topic is. So if it's HR, you could phone any company that has a big HR yeah, department. Yeah, and, and the most important thing is to do your homework. It may well be that a company with only 100 employees doesn't have enough managers to make it worth bringing you in for this kind of training, mm -hmm. right? So you want to be able to do your research and find out that within whatever your radius is that you're willing to work, you can find a list of the companies with, say, a thousand or more employees. And then maybe, you know, you, there, there are certain kinds of industries that are more important to you or less important to you. So, maybe, you know, maybe healthcare companies within you know, with a thousand employees or more, that sort of thing, or whatever market you want to target. But the more work that you can do to identify your target population, remember my example with going after college career services, mm -hmm. make sure it's the market that you, you know, right. it's going to be able to money. hire you. But, you know, you have to do your homework. You have to do your research. So having a, you know, it's just like that person who wanted to, to publish a book. You may have a great idea, but you've got to do more than just build a speech or write the book. You know, you have to understand the market. You have to be willing to go after it and go after it in an intelligent way. Do you ever want to go after the end user themselves? So in other words, let's say, okay, I'm going to go after real estate agents, but rather than going to the real estate companies to see if they're going to hire me, I'm going yep. to try to get the real estate people to come to this so, talk. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and if this works for some people, it doesn't for others. For example, I have a program for small business owners mm -hmm. on marketing and Basically, my program is about the fact that putting video on your website, online video, mm -hmm. is absolutely the most leveraged marketing strategy available to any small business owner, including people who are considering doing freelance work. It's amazing what the benefits are. And so my feeling was that small business owners don't have a lot of time. They don't have a lot of money. So it's really important to them to be able to be effective in this area, right? So I figured I will offer my own seminars directly to small business owners, which is okay. a great idea. You know, and it was a, wasn't charging a lot and opportunities to sell my books and I couldn't get anybody to sign up. Why? Because small business owners don't have any time or money. They don't have the money. <laughs> which is exactly what I was asking them for. Uh -huh. So I had very few people come to the seminars. On the other hand, there are people who are very successful at putting on these kinds of seminars. Typically, they're more thematic. There's a lot of just look around and see what works. And there are all kinds of programs available for women in business, seminars, workshops, that kind of thing. 
and because of uh, workplace uh, diversity, glass and all ceiling that. issues, you know, uh, yeah. you know, confidence. How, how do you? you know, there's, a, there's a lot of work li- work life balance issues. Uh, it's just it's a very rich topic, and a lot of women are interested in finding. But you resources. being a man, do they like you talking about? Well, it's not it's not <laughs> something that I go after, but just through observation, I see that that's a, a topic area Great that topic. works, and you know people people signed up for that. But you're probably better off to be a woman or the minority it, that they're catering to. Right. Catering it would be helpful to be of the of, of the, the the population. Not totally necessary. I mean, if if you're really good, you don't have to be, but but it helps. So the idea of of, of running your own seminars can work for some people. But it's it's that wouldn't be your first idea, though. Well, it was my first idea. Oh, OK. But it, wasn't but it a did good not idea. work out well for me. <laughs> Another way to go that route, though, though, is to find other people who are already successfully putting on those kinds of, of events. Right. And that you can piggyback off of. Again, they've got the event. You'll come and in return for something, you know, maybe they won't share the door with you, but, you know, give you the opportunity to sell your sell your books and things that at the event. You know, could be a way for you to take advantage of the audience that they can bring. I mean, just getting your name out there, or 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 they give you a back room section for your yep. books. Uh, you know, I notice that at like Tony Robbins events, and sometimes there'll be six other companies with their booths. Yeah, and and at those Tony Robbins events, speakers. not only are those other companies not getting paid to be there, they're paying they are to paying be to be there, and they're paying a portion of their sales. Uh, Tony's a good yeah. marketer. Yeah. Those those <laughs> events are. It, well, again, that's the major leagues. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's the NBA. That's the that's the top of the pyramid. And and those people, a lot of those people are masters at the business side of it. And mm-hmm. the message really, for a lot of them, becomes incidental. I, I attended a, a a weekend conference about uh, the the business of running a of being a professional speaker, and mm-hmm. the host pretty much up outright said, okay, you know. Here are the persuasion tactics you get so that, you know, get people to buy your stuff and then use those on us to get us to buy his stuff. How did he do? Did he do well with you? <laughs> uh, he, you know, he almost got me to spend a lot more money than I, than I planned plan to, that? but I, I backed away from it and not unhappy. Right, but they, they were closing a lot but of people. Closed, it, you know, <laughs> you, you've been to some of these things, I can tell. You know, and yes. Before they finish making the pitch, there's people running to the back because there's only 10 slots available. Yes, they they do have a yeah. lot of uh, interesting yeah. techniques. Yeah, but you know those people are are about selling stuff at those kinds of conferences. And for me, I'm I'm much more interested in the content side of it. I want to help people. I want to deliver practical information that they can really use. But coming back to you know your, one of your very first questions, what to charge? Basically, I need to charge enough money and get enough bookings that I can afford to pay my bills, so that I can afford to spread this message. Continue in the, in because the if I go out of business, then nobody benefits. So if you underprice yourself, that doesn't help anyone any more than overpricing. Right. I got you. Right. All right. Well, Alfred, you, you've been fantastic and amazing amount of information to help someone actually do this. What would be some of your last moments comments to to encourage everyone to to follow? Well, first of all, give me all your contact sure. information. Where, where can people get a hold of you and, and your book? And okay. So on? Again, I have a number of different faces that I present depending on the different topics that, that I cover. But if you want to find out more about me sort of in general, alfredpoor.com is, okay. is the easy one. If you're interested in my career success programs, again, primarily for the college students and recent graduates, that's alfredpoorspeaker.com. 
alfredpoorspeaker.com. I'm going to put this in my show notes, oh, too, but just in case someone doesn't yep. get to the show notes, they'll hear this. And then there's, there's a third site, uh, the Small Business Marketing, uh, which talks about the online video, but I also have programs. Uh, I have a speech as, that you mentioned, one of, one of my favorites, about the seven success secrets that small businesses could learn from Breaking Bad, which was one of my favorite shows. Uh, that's a sort of an entrepreneur startup kind of advice program, and I also have one about social media. Um, how to stop wasting time with social media as a small business. So let me just get this. Uh, it's smallbusinessmarketing.com. No, no, those, and you're one, uh, those, those, all those kinds of topics are covered on a site. It's called The Center for Small Business. Oh, okay. The Center for Small Business. And you can also get to it by its initials, tcfsb.com. Now, is that just you alone that's, there on that's that me. site? That's me, yep. Okay, good. I'm the founder and president of it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you want to be. <laughs> You're going to be the gatekeeper. Yep. yep. But uh, but and if anybody on your list uh, among your listeners, I'm also I'm uh, I'm I'm on social media. I'm on Google Plus, Facebook, Twitter. I mean, and I'm I'm there as Alfred Poor. So you should be able to find me. You know, if anybody has any problem? questions, any of your listeners have any questions personal that they they'd like to ask yes. me, I encourage you to email me. I be happy to. Okay, your email address. A Poor. A-P-O-O-R at Verizon.net. That's my personal email account, and I would be more than happy to entertain questions and offer advice and do whatever I can to help. Alvin, you brought one last thing up I forgot to sure. ask you because uh, I got lost in so many other questions. There, it was, it was, It's been a great conversation, though. LinkedIn being your first mm. choice, what would be your second choice of social media platforms? It depends on who your target market is and, and what you're trying to accomplish, but probably Facebook. Is the second okay, so is the Facebook second choice, views. and again, Facebook has groups where you can participate. Right. So seeking out Facebook groups of your you know your target audience can also be very mm -hmm. productive. What would be your third choice? I like Google Plus. I have a lot of success there, and and there's some good communities there. There the LinkedIn groups and Facebook groups on Google Plus. They're called communities. A lot of people tend to look down their nose at Google Plus, but there's a bunch of things about it that that I like in particular and works well for me. I like Twitter. Uh, and I'm on Twitter. Obviously, I use it. The problem is that it's a very flash, fast-flowing river, and mm -hmm. so even with your followers, your tweets are going to go going to go by unnoticed. Uh, it takes a lot of work to tweet often enough that your followers and, and people interested in your topics are going to see them. How often do you have to tweet then to get into that flow where people? I I don't do it enough. My guess is that you probably want to repeat the same tweet two or three times over the span of a day or two in order to increase its chances of getting seen. Fortunately, there, there are tools like Hootsuite that, that make this easier. You can help automate some of it. But Okay. I, I, I was just curious how, how Twitter fit in. Okay. Uh, well, this has been fantastic, Alfred. I appreciate uh, all the time you've given us, and I look forward to maybe talking to you in six months or something and see what your new book is and, and, and what new uh, revenue streams you've found. Good. Well, thank you so much, and again, best wishes to you. Thanks for this opportunity, and uh, I wish all the success for the your listeners who were you know, searching around and trying to figure out what comes next. That's super. All right, Alfred. Thanks Thank again. You. Okay. Bye, Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Income for Baby Boomers with your host, Ken Queen. Helping boomers like you get a business started you can run from your own home. We interview owners of both online and offline businesses, but most importantly, ones that are run by baby boomers. 
Stay tuned next week for new and exciting businesses that you can start from your home. Until next time, have a profitable and blessed week.